what do you need to have back in terms of a clear title um, and know that you've sort of ticked all those practical boxes. It's just not something that a lot of lawyers in the dealings would ever have to deal with. Um, and it's something as a property lawyer, you really get your hands dirty. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shump and in this episode, we're chatting to Tony Gillett, solicitor and principal of Lane Gillett and also co-solicitors. Interestingly enough, Gillett didn't start his career in law but is no stranger to the property world. He provides us with some useful tips if you are considering taking that plunge into property. So, stay tuned. Also, before we delve into this episode, go over to propertyinveststory.com and subscribe to receive your free property investor case studies where you'll learn how to generate passive income from your properties. Go there now to sign up for free. Meet Tony Gillett. He's no stranger to the property world. His father has an astounding 50 years experience in dealing with the logistics of property. I am principal at a law firm, uh, Lane Gallet & Co. Solicitors. I've uh, been going for 50 odd years, mostly through my father who I joined in the last sort of just under a decade now um, and we do a lot in the sort of property world, both um, conveyancing, purchasing and selling of properties as well as commercial leasing and a few other areas but that's our main focus so certainly property law is what we breathe um, from a day-to-day basis. So, what does Gillette's day consist of? An array of legal work surrounding property and occasionally putting out the fires for his loyal clients. I'd like to say it's not putting out fires all the time um, but that will really depend on what what the clients present to us. Um, Certainly at this time of the year as we head into the Christmas period, the panic seems to um, set in so there are a few more fires to put out. But um, look, there's a whole lot of obviously preparing um, both reviewing contracts for people. Generally, that we like to get as much notice as we can, but often that will entail a 5 p.m. Um, review of a contract for an auction on that night. So hopefully some of your listeners aren't in that situation. Um, we'll do all we can in those circumstances, but certainly it can be everything from yeah reviewing of contracts through to uh, preparing for up-and-coming settlements, dealing with banks, preparing, again, booking in settlements, and hopefully where we don't have to, um, but where we need to, um, dealing with various disputes, obviously protecting our clients' interests where there's either sales which are starting to look like they're falling over or or purchases where people are finding it hard to obtain finance, which we are seeing a little bit more of um, at present, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Wow, that sounds really interesting. You've got a full-packed day, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) Yes, it's certainly um, not not boring at all around here Um, and we run a pretty tight ship. We're a sort of small conveyancing practice, so we have senior licensed conveyances and a few other people helping around the office, but we keep it pretty tight, which is how I like the business to run, um, but it does mean um, you know when it's on, we're on, and and that makes the day go quickly. Gillette is a born and bred Easterner suburbs man. He started out in Bondo Junction, and this is where his law practice is located. Interestingly enough, he had a late entry into a legal career and actually started out in the science industry. So I grew up in the east of Sydney, 
so haven't strayed too far in that respect, considering we um, firm practice in Bondi Junction um, in Sydney's east. Um, so yeah, having grown up and gone to school in this area, um, my father, as I mentioned, um, ran this Lane Gallet & Co. for for many years now, as, as long as I've been around. So we certainly obviously had that exposure um, to what was going on around the dinner table, hearing some of the war stories where he was able to share um, in terms of property matters. Um, so yeah, having grown up around there, also went to university um, in Sydney's east, um, University of New South Wales. So, you know, really, uh, for the most part, haven't strayed too far, but, you know, when you find an area you like um, and happy to practice, that's, that's an area in which you remain. Definitely. So, just to clarify, did you study law at UNSW? Originally, I actually did a science degree, of all things. Um, so, I had a background in um, science research. I worked for a few uh, listed biotech companies, um, and in actual fact, I had a property bent to it. I was working on a lot of energy efficiency for various um, buildings during the basics and neighbours schemes um, in the sort of early 2000s, um, and then actually ended up at PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, became a chartered accountant at that time, um, and then decided to make the move to join my father's law practice, and therefore actually ended up at um, the University of Technology, Sydney, UTS where I actually did my um, law degree to upskill and then transfer from professional services into law. Gerlert realised that despite being successful in the science industry, it was not suited to him. That's when he made the life-changing decision to study law. It was always a matter of where each stage would take me. I mean, I think it's pretty standard these days to have, you know, very five to six careers during your lifetime. So I've certainly ticked that box. You know, generally every three years moving on, managed to stay in the law practice for a bit longer, which is good. But um, yeah, look, certainly the it's interesting. I got my first exposure, if you like, to property and, and my father's practice actually late school and during early uni days where I used to um, go into the city and do a lot of paralegaling, so really attending settlements. Um, and it was interesting at the time compared to now, just the way technology has sort of taken over. Um, I know at the time, for example, I'd be often having to go to the office state revenue to pay uh, purchases stamp duties. You'd basically take a ticket, go off and attend three settlements, come back to the office state revenue and see if your number had come up yet, uh, versus today where we do in-house stamping all you know over the net electronic duties um, transfers that happen nowadays. So come a long way but that was my first exposure if you like and um, before I guess coming full circle and heading back into the property market uh, and, and the law area um, with my science career so I basically worked in in the food industry for the CSIRO and a few other cooperative research centres then realised a PhD in academia wasn't for me. I actually set up an entrepreneurs and science unit at the University of New South Wales. Despite having success in the science industry, Gillette decided that corporate wasn't quite for him. His independent nature led him onto other things. So we were teaching science students business skills just to commercialise their ideas, protect their intellectual property, license out their ideas potentially, raise finance through venture capitals, etc. So we were just going through that whole process of, of getting a, a bunch of science and engineering students um, with a diploma of innovation management, as it was called at the time. Um, through that, then ended up actually working for this listed biotech company, Aeros Technologies, which was developing um, systems for HVAC or heating, ventilation, aircon systems in large buildings just to make them more energy efficient um, at the time. And then through that, became a lateral hire at PricewaterhouseCoopers, 
again, in the technology space, life sciences, helping corporate finance, tech companies work on business plans, raise funds. Um, and then it was at that point I decided really it was time to get out of corporate and, and do my own thing. Um, and having my father's law practice sitting here, he was looking to potentially close the doors on it. It was just a, an opportunity too good to refuse to, um, as I said, a couple of years of upskilling at UTS, did a Jewish doctor law degree. And, and amazingly, in a couple of years, I was working alongside here part-time at the law firm while I did that law degree. A couple of kids being juggled along the way there. So that was um, an interesting time, definitely um, relying heavily on the wife at that point. Um, while I basically went back into full-time study mode um, once again. But at least at the end of that, it's been a very worthwhile journey to be able to um, come in and take over the law practice. So, what became of his father? So, look, he's still around, although right now traveling in Europe. So, you know, the beauty is of me coming in, he's able to sort of come and go a bit more as the otherwise would. But uh, obviously, I've got to say, been fantastic to have him remain in here. And I guess it's one of those things you never quite know how you're going to be able to work alongside your father and, and there was always a few tentative moves of, of going to work with my father but it's just got to say been only positive, been wonderful just to tap his brain as I said from established this firm with um, together with Andrew Lang in the late 60s so um, with 50 odd years of experience behind him it's just invaluable to be able to uh, pick his brain and, and really just accelerate my learning um, during my time here. He's grateful for his prior corporate experiences but his biggest motivation is to serve the next generation of clients that originate from his father's law practice. The only obstacle, a slight language barrier. I think it's been very positive. Obviously, I've got a lot of commercial experience and training at places like PwC um, but at the same time, um, just yeah, having your own gig really it just changes the whole motivation, uh, what just drives you and brings you into work each day and just the way you can interact and, and choose how you deal with clients. Um, and I've got to say just, you know, that it's a really good news story it's for a lot of my father's clients who he's obviously had for many, many years, knowing that rather than he's going to transfer that practice to someone else with his son coming in, it's, it's only been uh, positive for the most part. Only problem was I don't speak Hungarian, which was my father's background. So, yeah, that, that was one bridge too far for me, um, learning that skill. Um, so we sort of worked through that. But look, generally, um, for the most part, that certainly doesn't affect the, the later generations of those clients. And we've got some clients here who literally were on to the third generation of, of, of doing work for them, which is just wonderful. His starting point into property investing was through exposure to his father's unit purchases and going through the process of buying his family home. You know, when I hear about some of your other speakers you've had and your listeners would have heard, I'm certainly not in that realm of, of um, exposure to property at a, at a personal level. Obviously, you know, we all go through, or at least a lot of us do, um, buying our own home and, and going through that process. And aside from that, I guess my main exposure is, um, is through the families, uh, both mine and my wife's, just obviously along the way. Um, my parents certainly went through, um, which I was certainly exposed to, um, you know, the buying of various investment units um, along the way and it was interesting actually my father many years ago used to certainly do a lot more of this effectively I guess what you'd call now flipping um, properties where you know you might try and find a, a nice two better unit and, and do what you can to convert that into a three ideally and then you know sell that or you know even just doing a quick minor renovation and, and again flipping those properties which I know his comments certainly were that you know once upon a time from his perspective, it was, well, it was a lot easier to sort of 
get away with and do, um, then maybe it is you know more involved now where you know getting owners corp approvals to put some of the stuff through. It's certainly become a lot more rigorous than it may have once been. Um, also, we've gone through since I came on board with him um, a couple of company title conversions. So again, it's just different ways property can be held rather than strata, which is probably more familiar to a lot of your clients um, or listeners. Um, certainly, traditionally, um, a lot of unit type situations and dwellings were were owned company title. There are still some, and we occasionally come across those um, where effectively each owner owns a share rather than um, an actual title to the property, um, and they have effectively the exclusive use under those shareholdings, and then the company itself holds the, the main property. Is that, is that common at all nowadays? Like, do we have many? Because I haven't heard of this where a company owns these. It is quite rare, but, you know, certain pockets within Paddington, Darling Point, um, in the east, you'll find, yeah, there are little pockets where there's still, I guess, that legacy uh, where they haven't been converted. We've done, as I said, there was one down in Bondi Beach, which we were certainly involved in, um, and there's certainly some upside there um, where there is that conversion. Generally, there'll almost be, I guess, ruffle of thumb. I'm no sort of land value or anything like that, but certainly there can be up to a 30% increase in value in uplift if you're able to really take what was once, let's say, a company title unit and convert that into a strata. Um, and look, the point is with company title, there can be a lot more onerous, I guess, um, things put on um, the various owners, which obviously everything that restricts also protects. So generally you'll find in um, company title properties, there may be a older generation um, demographic who are living there. They can often be a lot more onerous in terms of the amount of noise, disturbance, leasing, tenancies that can take place within the area as compared to what's under the strata legislation now, which is a little, I guess you'd probably call it a bit fairer, um, but certainly that's an attraction for, for some people. But generally when we're buying on behalf of clients for company title, it will be a, a more elderly retirees um, who are looking for a quieter environment. The process for company title is a little more strenuous than other types of purchases. Anyone who wants to buy into those properties has to actually be interviewed by the board. So directors or members, which effectively are other lot owners in that complex, literally have to um, interview uh, the various potential purchases after, let's say, an exchange of contract, and any contract will be subject to um, approval of the by the board. Um, not that I've ever seen one not approved, but it is a process in which every company title purchaser has to go through mm-hmm. to, to get on title, wow, or at least to, to become a shareholder. Yeah. So, and yeah, generally because of those restrictions, also finance-wise, it's a lot more restrictive. The main issue there is the security. So rather than having, let's say, a title, which you'd normally be able to hand over to the bank for either a strata or a standard, you know, standalone um, property, um, all you're really handing over is a share certificate to the bank. And obviously, the company who issued that share certificate, if it gets lost, can issue another one. So it's not as, I guess, regulated as the land titles office or as it's now known, land property information or its latest reincarnation now that's been privatized. It changes but, so many uh, times. Yes, yeah, changes all the time. We, it's like the RTA, same thing. Um, so um, because of that, I guess, lack of security, and we have seen you know, company title situations where literally those share certificates have just been reissued where they've lost it, even though there may have actually been a security or encumbered share certificate in those situations. So banks are quite wary. 
Um, often people struggle to get finance. Not always, but you probably have to go through probably the big four and therefore potentially pay higher rates than otherwise, um, people who are prepared to touch them. Um, and so if you are able to convert from company title, it obviously takes a whole, you know, all the lot owners to be up for that. Um, there is upside, um, but there's also compliance involved. So, for example, strata regulation will have a lot more onerous, for example, fire regulation. Probably not a bad thing. But still, um, yeah, it does change. It, yeah, it does change the amount of work that the that the owners have to decide to do. As I said, though, it's definitely potentially for for a greater gain. So um, there's there's some value to be had for people who want to search out a, a company title property if they're prepared to take that on and, as I said, take the risk. Coming up after the break. Galert will explain one of the worst investor situations to be in when trying to do a purchase and sale simultaneously. Our client doesn't have the funds to be able to purchase the property they're looking to purchase. So it's this sort of flow-on effect where they're suddenly running around trying to find bridging finance. He advises us on the pros and cons of smaller lenders. But we find when people drive too hard to sort of chase down that best rate, um, that can often have other unintended consequences he explains the art of property law and why it's important not to skimp on legal advice. That's the art of property law is, is being able to get that right and, and see all those potential headaches coming your way and there's a lot of timing issues as well um, that you need to sort of comply with along the way. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shump and you're listening to Property Investory. at buying or investing in property? Like what are the property hotspots or how do I start my portfolio? Clever ways to renovate and how to make an extra $50,000? Whether you're a new or experienced investor, learn from the experts at the Property Buy Expo in Brisbane on the 26th to 27th of May. Use the promo code PI for a free 2-day pass valued at $50. For tickets and more information, visit the website at propertybuyexpo.com.au. Now back to the show. Gallup believes that investors need to take particular caution when it comes to buying and purchasing simultaneously. He shares some of the near misses with his clients. Fortunately, we don't have too many war stories. We always like to have happy endings for our clients and and I guess, you know, being a small suburban convincing practice, we're not in the in the realm of of, you know, litigation or trying to um, take people on unless we actually have to and we'll generally get, you know, barristers and, and the like involved when it goes down that track. Um, but we've certainly had near misses, you know, for, for clients where they've, um, uh, whether they can be on, you know, either end of the receiving end of either a sale falling over because of a purchaser um, not being able to complete and get the finance or alternatively, you know, us as purchasers relying, let's say, on a sale of their property which falls through or maybe the buyer of their property falls through. So what we find more and more these days is that uh, people, I guess, are so worried about where a property market's going in terms of being able to lock in and secure a property to purchase um, that what we find is they're often quite prepared to, let's say, lock in that purchase with the intention is that they're really going to fund that through a potential sale of another property of theirs, um, yet they're not prepared to necessarily sell um, and then be locked out of the market where they can't find their next property to secure while the property market keeps moving. This is at least 
in the Sydney's east, it may not be all over the country, but in those situations, what we find is, let's say they've locked in their um, potential purchase and then they go through the process of trying to um, sell um, the property they were looking to exit um, and in so doing, either can't find in sufficient time a potential buyer for their property, um, therefore they're into the realm of potentially having to get bridging finance. Okay, So we've certainly had and I've actually got one going on right now, as it turns out, where effectively we, what we try to line up is what's referred to as a simultaneous settlement. So effectively what we'll do is we'll take the proceeds from their sale and then use that for their subsequent purchase. However, what's happened in that situation, for example, is that there'll be a potential purchaser who um, is actually having trouble with their finance and therefore can't buy our client's property. As a result, our client doesn't have the funds to be able to purchase the property they're looking to purchase. So it's this sort of flow-on effect where they're suddenly running around trying to find bridging finance. Um, and it's one of those situations where if you don't have that backup, I guess, in place, um, there's always a potential that they're, the person that they're buying off would um, try to terminate a contract. Um, now, the implication of them doing so for our client would be that our client would be forfeiting their deposit be that 5 or 10% um, over to that potential uh, vendor um, and that vendor could also then sue them on the resale of that property for any difference over and above the deposit that's been forfeited. Wow, that's so a bunch. It's, that's a bit, so bit, it's, bit, yeah, I mean, we're talking experience. in the hundreds of thousands of dollars plus yeah. in some scenarios where people um, are at risk of losing. Uh, now, we had another situation where our client Sorry, was Tony, selling. Sorry, Tony, before, before we go yeah. on that, just maybe Please. to explain to the listeners, what is bridging finance for people who don't know what that is? So, look, the idea of bridging finance is, as it, I guess the term refers to, is it's really just trying to find finance in that situation, for example, so that our client who was looking to buy another property, while they don't have the funds from their sale in place and ready to go, they can still proceed with their purchase and therefore not be penalised by the, the potential seller of that other property that they're looking to buy. Um, so they would go to the bank, potentially if they've already got a mortgage in place for the property they're looking to sell, they could use that as collateral or they could say to the bank, look, when we buy this next one, we'll basically give you the title to that property on settlement and what they're really looking to put in place is just short-term uh, lending which will allow them to proceed with a purchase, but the whole basis of it and why it's referred to bridging rather than just getting a loan for a purchase is that, in fact, that there is a sale underfoot um, and that sale and the proceeds of that sale is just being delayed for whatever reason, either that they just didn't find a buyer and haven't exchanged contracts and they're still looking to sell their property or, in our particular client's case, they did sell, but that particular purchaser of their property that's being purchased um, is struggling to get finance, therefore there's a delay to that settlement, but we don't want to hold up and be at risk of losing our deposit, so we'll use the bank's bridging finance to basically secure the property and then hope that that other sale fall, um, comes through sooner or later. If not, obviously we would keep the deposit on that subsequent um, you know, sale that fell over and we would resell the property, at which time we could then repay the bridging finance and finally remove that facility. So obviously it goes without saying it's short term, it's going to be at a higher rate, it's not cost effective but it's relative to losing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of deposits, it's absolutely you know, an option available. It's very short term, it's, it's not something you want to go into lightly 
Um, but we always tell people who are in this situation where they're relying on their sale proceeds for a purchase, just like anyone who's going into a purchase, you know, you need to know there's contingencies in place. Um, you know, so where are the funds going to come from for that purchase? And obviously, if it's relying on whether it's a conditional loan or a sale of, a, of another property, you know, you've got to go in eyes wide open knowing that, well, not everything goes according to plan. And that can be as simple as just having got a loan and then after going to an auction with, a let's say, a conditional loan, um, then after the auction, going getting the bank in to do their valuation and all of a sudden finding that it actually hasn't met the, the purchase price. Um, sometimes you can put some insurance in place, which can which can help people to that end. Um, I'm not a broker in the sort of finance area, so obviously can't provide a lot of detail around that. But I know that is something that people put in place at times where the valuation falls too low. But obviously, if it is too low, then they'll literally have to find another borrower. Gula advises to proceed with caution when making an offer, which shortens the settlement time. People try and make purchases before an auction. Obviously, a lot of vendors are very, um, you know, keen on the whole auction setting. Having said that, we see a lot of pre-auction offers which are made, and so for potential purchasers to make their offers as attractive as possible, they may well, you know, often say, "Look, we'll settle in two, three weeks rather than six standard six weeks." Um, but obviously, that then may make your offer very attractive when you think, well, if I've got the finance or I've got the funds for the same purchase price, it's not really costing me more. Um, let's just make our offer more attractive than the second highest or the, or the other bidder um, and get it done. But then it puts the pressure on that you're committed to this um, quick settlement time. And if you can't get your finance organized in that time, then you, you run into difficulties. He advises that while it is important to get competitive home loans and rates, sometimes the best rates can come with more hurdles when it comes to settlement time. People are chasing those those competitive rates. As I said, we're not brokers. We obviously have various brokers who, who, who our clients use. Um, but we find when people drive too hard to sort of chase down that best rate, um, that can often have other unintended consequences. Um, what we'll find is... As soon as you stray from the big four, and I'm not advocating in any way that the big four are where it's at, but generally we find when you are with some of the bigger institutions, they have their own, I guess, settlement teams, and they generally can make things happen pretty quickly. The more you sort of head down chasing these sort of competitive rates, what can often happen is then they won't have their own conveyancing teams in-house. They'll bring in sort of external legal um, teams to work on it for them. Um, which can then make purchases have to jump through all sorts of hurdles, um, sometimes to the, just to the point of just ridiculous um, requests, um, which can just to the point where people just decide, look, I'm just going to stick with the more traditional sources of finance and, um, and pay the higher rate and potentially refinance once I've got the property if that's an option. But, you know, we're, we're all very much focused on the period between an exchange or let's say an auction and when we need to come up with those, you know, funds for settlement. Um, and we just want to make sure that we're not going to be penalised because those penalty rates, certainly even from a seller of a property, um, they can be charging anywhere from 10 to 12% uh, per annum calculated daily on the balance of purchase price not, pay, not paid by the time of um, settlement. So while someone's trying to find their best rate, in the meantime, they're getting hit with um, yeah exorbitant penalty rates because they haven't been able to complete, let alone risking their whole deposit if they can't complete by the time a contract is terminated and there's a separate 
which if you want, I'm happy to take you through, but it's, there is another period called the 14-day notice to complete period, which is really what a party needs to serve on the other side before they can actually terminate and really have a right to keep the deposit. He also explains what his aha moment was that led him to work in the area of property law. It was all really about conveyancing um, and, and what's involved in turning up at a settlement. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, I'd had some exposure to that during my early sort of uni and even late school years of just of just turning up to a settlement room with all these people shouting and everyone madly trying to hand over checks and get titles. But what this practitioner at UTS had said to me was that uh, in many respects, for many lawyers, they go in, they've got their particular area of law and they'll understand all their judgments and repercussions and precedents and, and can advise their client on all sorts of advice. But for a lot of those practitioners, when it comes down to a simple situation of just what needs to be handed over when and you know before you're, let's say, prepared to release the funds, what do you need to have back in terms of a clear title um, and know that you've sort of ticked all those practical boxes it's just not something that a lot of lawyers in their dealings would ever have to deal with. Um, and it's something as a property lawyer, you really get your hands dirty um, to, to just really just, it sounds very simple, but in reality, it's crucially important. You know, and I can't tell you the number of times you can get caught out, whether it's something like a land tax charge on a property, um, which you're relying upon, or whether it's just a mortgage or a caveat on title, whatever it is. And, and it really... I guess, has implications across not only buying and selling of properties, but we do also buying and selling of businesses for clients, which often have leases attached to them. We do a lot of leasing matters. And again, before you're willing to hand over keys to a tenant, you know, to protect our clients when they're landlords, what boxes need to be ticked. Um, and it's really one of those things that's quite clean. And that's what I guess I love about it is that it's transactional. It's very orderly as long as you have that kind of mind just to sort of work through the list and know exactly what you need and the order of things before you're willing to sort of hand over, uh, whether it's the keys to a property uh, for a lease or, or in fact, handing over checks um, in, in relation to getting a title for a property. Because once you sort of either hand over keys or hand over those checks, it becomes incredibly difficult, um, potentially where litigation is costly involved, um, to be able to really then recoup your client's interests and rights, um, and really that's the art of property law, is, is being able to get that right and, and see all those potential headaches coming your way. And there's a lot of timing issues as well um, that you need to sort of comply with along the way. Um, and so that's what I love, I guess, about it, is it's very clean, very transactional. As I said, we don't do litigation, which can sort of generally drag out um, for long periods of time and can have more uncertainty. Um, so generally, we get happy clients at the end of the day. That's great. It's so important to have a checklist and I think in life, just with anything, even just going away on a holiday, you, you yeah. want to make sure that you pack everything so you've got a checklist and it's the same thing in life and these are you know, the, the things that we, we take for granted because you know, in the back of the head, we think, yep, it's going to be easy to just mark it off and so forth but this is a big, big transaction especially if it's you know, a purchase for your own home or investment yeah. property that you're going to be using to investment purposes which is really, really important. It absolutely is and you know, obviously our job in many respects we see is trying to take that pressure off and take that anxiety away from clients so advise them as much as we can beforehand and, and obviously in this day and age of technology there's more and more things out there which um, can really assist. I mean, for example, we've just started doing 
we've done only a couple handful now, but um, of um, electronic settlements, for example, on behalf of clients. It's something that this whole idea of e-conveyancing is going to be mandatory within a couple of years. Um, and at this point, there's not a lot of firms who are putting up their hand to do it, but we're certainly trying to be at the forefront of that. And as part of that, there are certainly you know, along the lines of like apps that are being developed, which can all help in terms of checklists. So things can be automated and and clients can log in and and see where the matter is up to and what they're needing to do, whether it's a final inspection of the property before settlement to make sure they're they're satisfied and, and give instructions to proceed. So inspired by Tony Gillette's story and his advice, We'll continue the conversation in a future episode on property investory where we'll find out his go-to resources. Obviously, as a lawyer, Law Society of New South Wales has some has some you know great resources um, out there and just particular guides. And, and we're always obviously happy um, to send people information, some of those guides and that sort of thing um, through our particular website, uh, langellett.com.au. Um, certainly, we've got some you know literary information on there. What to tell your solicitor upfront when purchasing a property? First question we'll ask is where the funds are coming from for their potential purchase, um, which is an obvious obvious one. But um, and again, a lot of the case, most people won't have formal approval. They'll generally have what's referred to as pre-approval or conditional. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. Also, if you haven't subscribed to receive your free property case studies that I only send out exclusively via email then head over to propertyinveststory.com and subscribe. These real case studies are from experienced property investors where they share specific numbers of their portfolio, the strategies and much more. Simply visit propertyinveststory.com to receive your free case studies. Thanks for listening.